0: Good morning, brothers. <clears throat> so good to see all of you today. I'm all hyped up on Dayquil. If, uh, this front row might need to go back a little bit. <laughs> uh, it's so good to see all of you. I hope you have a good morning and enjoying your fellowship and this beautiful breakfast that the kitchen staff has uh, prepared for us. and. And I'm telling you what I'm excited about next Thursday. Uh, take that invitation to heart. Invite your friends. I can't wait to sit under uh, Sandy's teaching yet again. It's going to be a good day. Uh, I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter three. <clears throat> As you're turning there, I really don't think there's a chapter in the Bible that has been preached on more than John three. You know, my study. You you won't believe the material. Um, Both commentaries and just articles alike on John. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite authors, has an entire book. Um, In fact, it was probably edited together. But about 30 different sermons just on John 3. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, In fact, it's a little overwhelming. I I leaned heavily on Sandy and Keller and our commentary that we're reading together and uh, Kent Hughes and others. But the question needs to be asked, why is there so much material on John 3? Why are there so many sermons preached on John 3? I love what Bishop Ryle says. He says, a man can be ignorant of many things in the Bible and yet be converted. But to be ignorant of the material in John 3 is to be on the broad road that leads to destruction. In other words, John 3 is just that important. There's some significant things that are being said and taught in chapter 3. In fact, Jesus hints at this at the end of chapter two. It was two weeks ago when we last met together. You remember we didn't get to those last couple of verses in John chapter two, um, because I said they served as a bridge into John chapter three. Well, after Jesus cleanses the temple, after he does that miracle in the wedding uh, feast in Cana, we're told by John that many people came to believe in the name of Jesus on account of all the signs that he was doing. Only one of them was recorded, right? We just looked at that one major sign, but apparently Jesus had done many signs In and around the wedding feast at Cana, John at the end of his gospel tells us that there's many signs that Jesus did. But I'm just going to write you about seven of them, right? But anyway, of all the signs that Jesus was doing, John tells us a lot of people came to believe in the name of Jesus. Yet John tells us Jesus did not entrust himself to those people because apparently there was something defunct about their faith. It was surfacy. It wasn't true and saving faith. There was something that was missing. Well, Jesus tells us what was missing in this evangelistic conversation that he's about to have with this religious somebody, this man named Nicodemus, and it's a beautiful chapter. So let's read it together, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. The kingdom of God, that which is born of flesh is flesh and not enter, or rather that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not know these things. For everyone who does wicked things, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now after this Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness what I said. I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for my friends in this room, my brothers, that you've given uh, breath to our lungs. You've caused us to wake this morning and to come here to, yes, have fellowship, um, but also to eat and feast from your life-giving word. Uh, Lord, I am completely incapable of opening (laughs) the depths of this passage. So we pray that you send your spirit upon us, that you'd anoint me, that you'd anoint each of us, that you'd ready our hearts and open our eyes uh, to see the marvelous truth that you give us in this third chapter of the Gospel of John. Speak to us, our Lord, for your servants. Listen, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 5, Paul exhorts young Timothy, and really all of us, not just Timothy, but all of us, a number of things. This is what he says. He says, Timothy, be sober-minded, all right? Uh, endure suffering. Fulfill your ministry, whatever your ministry is, fulfill that. And right there, smack dab in the middle, he says, and also do the work of an evangelist which isn't a suggestion, it's a command to all of us to do work of the evangelist. Now, i got to confess to you, I'm not that great of an evangelist. Um, I try, I do it, but it is, I mean, it's, it's like on candid camera, it would be on a Comedy Central. I mean, it's, I'm sweaty, um, I stumble over my words, I say inappropriate things because I'm nervous just by accident, and, you know, and I also fall to the temptation sometimes, I think most of us do, that I take the first on off ramp, in those conversations when they come up. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you have the opportunity to talk about the gospel, but you end up talking about the weather instead, or how lousy your team played the Saturday before. You all ever do that? It's like kind of (laughs) self-preservation. Thank goodness I got out of that sticky situation. We do that sometimes. But the fact of the matter is, we might not be well-trained evangelists. We might be intimidated, even though in, in our heart of hearts, we know as Christians we have nothing to be intimidated about. But nevertheless, all of us are called to be evangelists. And if that is the case, and it is the case, as the scriptures tell us, that I think it would do us well to turn our gaze upon the perfect example of evangelism, Jesus Christ himself. And we see that in John chapter 3. Sinclair Ferguson says that if you were to take the spirit, I love this so much. He says, if you were to take the spiritual pulse of Jesus, you would find that the heartbeat of God, has an evangelistic rhythm. If you were to take the spiritual pulse of Jesus, you would find that the heartbeat of God has an evangelistic rhythm. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, John says the same thing in John chapter three. I mean, the, the summarizing verse is uh, verse sixteen and seventeen. John tells us that God has not sent His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That is the heartbeat of God. I mean, I'm serious. As soon as Jesus steps onto the stage of human history, the first phrase that He utters, according to Mark, following His baptism, is "The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe." The first thing that He says. And what that tells me is <laughs> like, unlike us, Jesus just doesn't waste time talking about the weather or about how well or how lousy Ole Miss football played this past Saturday. He gets straight to business, the business that his father gave him in eternity past, the business to take care of humanity's greatest problem. So what is humanity's greatest problem? Well, it isn't politics or poverty, although those things are very important. It's not about how well our retirement is doing or how well our kids are doing or what our kids are doing, what our waistlines are up to these days. I mean, it's not about that. Humanity's greatest problem, our greatest problem, is our alienation from God, the one who created us for himself in whom we can only be satisfied, but we are separated from because of our sin problem and our corrupted nature. And the Bible tells us, John tells us, the very reason Jesus came was to solve humanity's greatest and most urgent need. And what we see in John chapter 3, and really John chapter 4, is that it really doesn't matter who you are. You could be a religious somebody like Nicodemus. You could be a religious nobody like the woman at the well. But what everybody needs is to be born again. We must have that to receive and enjoy eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in John chapter 3, we're going to see a couple of things. Hopefully, we'll see some amazing facets and truth about this beautiful doctrine, which is really the doctrine of regeneration, new birth. But I think we're also see, going to see, too, the urgency in the heart that we are called to have as God's men as we share the gospel with our Nicodemuses all right? Now, there's three overarching points. First off, it's the essence of new birth. There's going to be three subpoints there. Secondly, the, um, um, the basis of new birth. Then lastly, what is the posture of someone who's born again? We'll probably spend the least amount of time there. Um, hopefully, we'll get through everything. So first off, the essence of new birth, verses one through eight, there's three things I want us to see. The necessity, the nature, and the gift of new birth. First off, the necessity of new birth, verses 1 through 3. If we're going to understand the urgency and the necessity of what Jesus is talking about here, I think it's important for us to understand who this guy Nicodemus is. If you look at verse 1, we're told a number of things. First off, we're told that he's a Pharisee. Now, sometimes as Christians, we are hard on the Pharisees. You know, Pharisees did get themselves in a lot of trouble in the Gospels. But usually we're pretty hard on the Pharisees. I don't think we need to be too hard on our man Nicodemus here, all right? Because as a Pharisee, that means that he, first off, believed the Bible. Right, he wasn't a Sadducee. You know, he wasn't a theological liberal. He believed the Bible, he believed it to be God's word. He took obedience to God's word very seriously. He was generous, he was an honest person. In fact, all of us would be very comfortable of our daughters marrying a man named Nicodemus. I mean, he's just an upstanding citizen, he's a good guy. Furthermore, we're told that he's part of the ruling party, Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, that means he's part of the Sanhedrin court. Now, what is the Sanhedrin court? It's kind of a mixture of two things. It's kind of like our version of the Supreme Court. And also, he's like the head of the greatest seminary in America. All right? So, basically, he's a very important religious ruler. So, he's a Pharisee. He's a very important man, both in the religious circles and in just the political world. We're also told, too, that he visited Jesus under the cover of night. Now, what is that all about? I think there's two things there. First, he visited Jesus under the cover of darkness because he didn't want his colleagues to know that he was meeting with Jesus. Remember what happened at the end of John chapter (laughs) 2. Jesus flipped tables in the temple. I'm sure he wasn't very popular with the Sanhedrin court at this point. So you could say it's because of cowardice, or you could just say he's being calculated. He doesn't know who really Jesus is yet. But it also tells us, too, that, that Nicodemus was a spiritually curious man. Right, Because he does not go to Jesus to to interrogate him or to cause him to get tripped up in his words like the scribes and other Pharisees would do later in his ministry. If that was his intention, he probably just would have done it in the daytime. I mean, the Sanhedrin court would have been happy for him to do something like that, but that's not what he does. He goes under the cover of nighttime to figure out who Jesus is. I mean, he's got some heavy-duty questions for Jesus. He is, he's a spiritually curious person. It's clear that he thought a lot of Jesus. I mean, just note that Nicodemus, remember, he's like the president of RTS Seminary. I mean, he's just a, he's a theologically trained person. Yet, this man from Nazareth, who was either a carpenter or a mason worker, who wasn't theologically trained in the traditional sense, calls him a rabbi, my rabbi, teacher. I mean, that is... Deep respect that Nicodemus would call Jesus rabbi in this instance. Secondly, he also called him a man of God, that you have come from God. He probably spoke spoke more than he knew, but he knew that there was something special about Jesus. He goes, Jesus, you have to come from God. There's no way that you could be doing the things that you're doing without coming from God. So he he, he knew there was something special about Jesus. His worldview was beginning to crack a bit. He was spiritually curious. Now, friends, just think about that. Just just step out of John 3 for a moment. God ordained this to happen. Jesus was expecting it, the Son of God. But just think about how this this meeting might have taken place. Did they see each other earlier in the day? Were they uh, on top of someone's roof as is depicted in the show The Chosen? I mean, how did it happen? Did Jesus just know that he was going to come and he happened upon Jesus, happenstance? Whatever it was, we know that God ordained that to happen. The spiritually curious man to meet Jesus under the cover of darkness, to have his questions answered. So the next time someone comes to you, a Nicodemus, and has a question, that wasn't by accident. God ordained that to happen. Just something for us to think about. So he was a spiritually curious person. But we also understand, too, and I think this was Nicodemus' major hang-up, okay? Um, Jewish tradition tells us that any Jewish person could consider themselves saved if they just, you know, kept to the, the customs, like circumcision, and they were generally obedient to the law, and they weren't heretics. If they weren't those things, and if they did those things, they were a saved person. And that's just any ordinary Jew. But remember, this is Nicodemus. He's the head of the line. Like, he's the most morally upright person in Israel at this point, okay? I mean, this is, this is Nicodemus. So, of course, he had that mindset coming into this conversation with Jesus, this general entitlement to the things of God, the kingdom of God, and eternal life. And again, that's something else for us to think about, too, because most people live that way, even those in the church. There's some in the church that think that, too. I'm a generally upright standing person. I pay my taxes, I read my Bible, I'm nice to my kids. I, God kind of owes me this. I mean, I'm a good, decent man. Most people think they're entitled to these things if they live a certain way. But notice how Jesus stops him right in his tracks. I mean, it's almost abrupt because, you know, it seems like Nicodemus wants to say more and Jesus just stops him in his tracks. <laughs> what does Jesus say? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one, And what that means, that's significant. I mean, he's speaking to us at that point, because if he was just speaking to Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus. But he doesn't say that. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above. So Jesus is talking about all of humanity. He even gets more direct in verse 7. He says, you, plural, must be born again. So just think about what Jesus is saying here. Um, Nicodemus is kind of a repre- I think he's a representative for us in this passage. Because in all actuality, he is the best of us in this room. <laughs> he really is. I mean, if you want to stack our records up next to his, we don't, we don't hold a candle to how good of a man this was. I mean, he really was a religious somebody. He cared about God's word. He was a teacher of God's law. And so if Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus, he could be saying it to any of us. So, so Nicodemus, listen. Or Barton, listen. Or Frank, listen. Or Ted, listen. It doesn't really matter what you do. And granted, Nicodemus, you do a lot. But it has not moved the needle in your relationship with the Lord. If you want to know God, truly know Him, and if you want to be in this intimate relationship with Him, you must be... Born from above, and if you're not born from above, you can't even see the kingdom of God much more enter it. So this is what Jesus, God incarnate, is saying. He's saying there's not one person in this world that has ever entered the, the kingdom of heaven without being born again. It's absolutely impossible. It's a necessity, in other words. Now, before we move on, just think about this upper hand that God gives us evangelistically. Right there, we know what every single person in the world needs, regardless how good they are. They could be a religious somebody, but you and I know what every single person in this world needs down deep. They need a relationship with Jesus. They need to be born again, which we'll talk about what that means in just a second. But this is what people need, even if they don't know it or not. We know what their need is, and we can speak directly into it with truth as Jesus does here. It also means too, if salvation is based on this and not religious attainment and not our good efforts and not our good work, that means brothers, anybody can be born again. No one is beyond redemption, okay? That's what that means, as we'll see clearly in John chapter four. Do you see how great news that is? I mean, Jesus is laying down the law here of what must happen, of what is needed. But it's completely equitable. The the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one is beyond redemption, is what we learn when we put John 3 and John 4 together. But nevertheless, this this is what is essential. New birth is a necessity for eternal life, okay? Now, secondly, the nature of new birth. And this is really the meat and the potatoes of this passage, I think. We see this in verses 4 through 7. What is new birth? Unfortunately, that word has been hijacked by all sorts of people. Demographers use it as a, as a word to describe a certain voting block, the evangelical right. Um, other people use it as a word to differentiate between Christian groups. You know, the Catholics are over there, the nominalistic mainline Christians are over here, the, the Bible-believing Christians, the, those born-again Christians are over here. But listen, for Jesus <laughs> to describe someone as a born-again Christian, That is like the greatest redundance. Jesus would say, why are you saying the same thing twice? I mean, to be a Christian is to be born again. To be born again is a Christian. Those things, the exact same thing is what we learn in John chapter 3. So what is it to be born again? What does that mean? What is this new birth? Well, if we look at this conversation taking place between Jesus and Nicodemus, we learn a couple of things. First off, it is clear in verse 4 that Nicodemus is completely confused by this whole concept of being born again that Jesus just brought up in verses 1 through 3. I mean, just look at the question he asks. He says, Jesus, I'm an old man. I mean, how can I be born again? Do I somehow re-enter my mother's womb, God rest her soul? I mean, he's an older man at this point. I'm sure his mother had passed away. Now, when Nicodemus asks this question, I don't think he's being silly. I don't think he's being condescending as some um, commentaries make it out that he's just being, being dismissive of Jesus, acting as if Jesus is ridiculous. I think he asked that question because he's legitimately confused. Legitimately confused for two reasons. One, when Jesus brings up that phrase, kingdom of heaven. In Nicodemus' mind, he immediately would have thought that Jesus was referring to the general bodily resurrection at the end of time that every conservative Jew, like a Pharisee, believed in. The Sadducees didn't. The Pharisees did. Okay, It's so like the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah prophesies about in Isaiah 65. You know, in, in his mind, in his worldview, the renewal of all things was something that was reserved for the end of time, the end of the age. And so when Jesus is talking about this kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of heaven, kind of in the present tense, that would have been greatly confusing for Nicodemus. Like, what are you talking about? Is, are you saying the future has come into the present? It has, but he, he doesn't know that yet. So that would have confused him. That would have like, really bothered him. Another thing, too, and I think we can see this by the nature of the question that he asks. Nicodemus does not see this as an analogy, not because he's dumb, but because he's completely focused on the here and now, on the temporal plane, on the physical life that we have. And so he's basically assuming that Jesus is talking about a do-over. Jesus, are you, are, is what you're offering me a mulligan? Is that the good news that you're, that you're preaching here, that... That somehow I can go back to the beginning and start this life over again? And again, a lot of Christians and a lot of people in the world think that's what Christian conversion is about, that Jesus just puts you right back on the horse, that he gives you another chance, and now it's all up to you. But but he saved you this time, but now now it's up to you. Listen, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Because again, chapter 2, Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. And he knows that if we got a, a second chance, a moly, <laughs> we would fail right over again. He could give us a billion chances and we would keep failing and failing and failing. Why? Because it has nothing to do with our hard work. It has nothing to do with our grit. It has nothing to do with how well we're going to try this time. It has nothing to do with luck. We're going to fail time and time again because we have a corrupted nature. Our hearts are bad. So if the good news is that Jesus is just going to put your right book up on the horse and now it's your time to do this thing right, that's not good news at all. That's terrible news. We should all quit right now and leave and go to work. That's not good news. That's a life of folly. That's a life of hopelessness, right? Praise be to God. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. What Jesus is teaching about here is complete transformation. He's talking about a new life altogether. And furthermore, he says this life, this amazing new life and transformed life can be received and experienced in the here and now. All right, so what is he talking about? We get a hint, if you look at verse 5, when he says, one must be born of water and spirit. Now, when he says that, he's referring to a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36. In other words, Jesus didn't just spin up this, this new doctrine out of thin air, okay, In fact, he kind of gets on to Nicodemus. He goes, Nicodemus, you're a teacher in Israel, and you don't know this one? I mean, this is kind of one of the big ones. Okay, this is one of the big promises that God makes you. And you don't know what I'm talking about? Nicodemus, the time's at hand. (laughs) This this is is coming about. So, what is it that Nicodemus should have known? Well, go to Ezekiel chapter 36. If you don't want to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Context God's people are exiled. Okay, they're idolaters. They are sexually immoral. Um, They don't care about the poor. They're stingy with their money. Their worship stinks. And they've been exiled. They've been alienated from God's presence on account of their sin problem. But God makes a promise. He says, guys, as your father, I'm not done with you yet. I have plans for you. What are those plans? Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols I will cleanse you. Do You see what God is saying in Ezekiel's day? He's saying sinful humanity, Israel, there's one day that I will come to you and just as water washes away the filth and the mire from your body and your feet, I'm going to wash you of all of your corruptions. I'm going to wash you of all your sin, all of your guilt, all of your shame. And when I wash you, you'll be clean forever. And it gets better. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove that heart of stone that you have from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh that is a heart that is sensitive to the things of God. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleansiness. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Nicodemus, how do you not know this? This is the great promise. This is the great hope and the time is at hand. I'm causing this to happen. Listen, Nico, unless you're born of the cleansing water of my father, unless you have that spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But when you are washed clean by his blood and you do receive my spirit, you will walk with him and he will be your God forever and ever. And that alienation problem that you and all of humanity suffers from will come to an end forever. And that intimacy that you have with God will continue to grow and grow and grow like that fine new wine of the kingdom that we talked about in John chapter 2. And you will be his man and he will be your God forever and ever. And what is absolutely amazing is that he tells us that we don't have to wait for that. The future has invaded the present This is the great, awesome news of new birth. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, even though the kingdom of God and all its infinite power to cleanse and renew will only come fully at the end of history, the new birth is an implantation of God's future power in your life right now. So it's like back to the future. God takes what will happen in the future and makes it a reality in your life in the present. That's what it means to be created new. We are new creations right now. The future glory that God will show forth at the end of time to heal everything in the whole world, Keller writes, can come into your life now and begin to change you from the inside out. In other words, we're not talking about a do-over. We're talking about being transformed. We're talking about being made new. This is what Paul says. If you're, <clears throat> if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Not one day. Now, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Now, the old has gone. Behold, the new has come. And as those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, who have been given new hearts, who are new creations day by day, brothers, it might not seem like it. But if you've got the Spirit of God in you, day by day, you're becoming more and more like Jesus until that day to come when we're transformed in the twinkling of an eye and we're all little Christ's before him. Jesus is saying, this is what new birth is. That's where new birth is headed. That's where it's taken you. And Jesus says, we must have this. It even gets greater, though. Because even though we must have this, Jesus makes it clear we can't earn this. Because this amazing thing is an unmerited gift. We see that in verse 8. This is what Jesus is saying with all these analogies. He's he's given us two big ones in these first eight verses. There's the overall analogy of being born. And then there's this wind analogy. In both cases, you and I have nothing to do with those things, right? No one's ever congratulated themselves when they were born, I don't think. Um, None of us have ever seen or can control the wind. However, we do experience the benefit of it. What Jesus is saying is that if you are born again, you are a product of the sovereign, mysterious power and grace of God. It's all about grace is what verse 8 says. It's not because you go to amen. It's not because you are raised in a Christian family. It's not because you're a religious somebody. It's not because you're capable. In fact, in my mind, this passage assures me that I'm completely incapable. This is what Jesus is showing Nicodemus. Aren't you thankful for those moments in our lives that God gives us, overwhelms us to remind us how incapable we are? I'm experiencing one right now. Um, this, past, this past weekend, uh, we were playing uh, front yard football, my wife and my oldest son. And uh, my wife got cocky. She started doing her Dion Sanders in-zone dance and, um, Her foot caught, and I can laugh about it now. I was not laughing when it happened. But she tumbled and uh, fell and broke her arm in four places. And um, my son actually sat down next to her. goes, Mom, it's okay. I'll give you the touchdown. (laughs) And uh, anyway, uh, it took all of one second for me to realize how incapable of a parent I am. I mean, seriously, Sarah needs a raise. (laughs) The things that woman does, taking care of our family that I now have to do. I mean, I didn't know if I was gonna make it here this morning, I'm so exhausted. But I'm completely incapable as a parent. I need my wife. I need grace big time. And what this passage shows us, brothers, we are completely, completely spiritually incapable of saving ourselves. It's all about grace. That's what Paul teaches us in Ephesians 1. Go back and read Ephesians 1 whenever you get hoity-toity and see how dependent you are on the grace of God. It's amazing. All of this is about the grace of God. And let me tell you, if you're here this morning and you're not yet converted, you know, maybe you're a Nicodemus and you have legitimate questions, you're spiritually curious. The only reason you're here is because the gracious power of the Holy Spirit is hovering over your life. Churning that up. Don't ignore that. It's all about grace. So This is the essence of, of new birth. There, there, it's a necessity. It's a complete transformation. It's a new life that starts now and gets better and better and better until we come to the fullness thereof in the day to come. And it's all about Grace. Which leads us to our next main point. What is the basis of new birth, right? We see this in verses uh, 9 through 21. After, I have no reason to believe this, I just think this. After Nicodemus heard Jesus say all of that and explain all of that, I got to believe tears were forming in that man's eyes. I mean, how could they not? I mean, he's spiritually tender. He's spiritually curious. And Jesus just laid on him this amazing truth, this amazing promise. Of course, that guy was weepy. I don't think he was converted. Uh, We have reason to believe he's converted by John chapter 19, although we're not exactly sure. But right here, it's clear that he's bewildered by the grace of God. I mean, he's actually thinking about this. And we see that in the question he asked in verse 9. Jesus, how can these things be? He's not denying what Jesus is saying. He's just simply saying, Jesus, I don't understand how this is possible. The things that you're talking about, I mean, I see your analogies of the birth kind of and, and the wind, I get that, but, but how is this possible? What is the power behind this new birth? Please help me understand this. Then in verses 10 through 21, Jesus graciously explains it to him how by pointing to himself and his work on the cross. Okay, so there's three things that Jesus says about the cross explaining how the new birth is possible. The first thing that he gives us is a great illustration in verses 14 and 15. I mean, this is the most on the nose illustration of the cross you'll ever find in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And as soon as he referred to it, Nicodemus, you know, he had been transported back a couple of thousand years to when it happened in Numbers 21. This was a very important story in the history of Israel. So it's Numbers 21, this is the analogy, this is the illustration that Jesus is referring to to explain what's going on. Okay, so it's the bronze serpent story Numbers 21. I'll read it for you. From Mount Or they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God. These are people who were just recently rescued from Egypt. And they start speaking against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. Can you imagine saying that audibly to the Lord? We loathe your blessings. But that's what they said. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and live. It's a story of both horror and glory. Horror because it shows the effects of sin and God's judgment on sin. Glory because it shows God's gracious provision to sinful people who don't deserve it. And Jesus makes the application crystal clear. He says, As Moses lifted up that servant, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Do you see how this is just a perfect story for Jesus to use to describe what he's about to do? How all of this is possible? Everything fits. It's the perfect illustration. The snakes represent sin, which is, I think, fits quite well. If you know the story of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent led Adam and Eve into sin, which resulted in our condemnation, our corrupted sin natures, and the fall in general. So that's a perfect lined up analogy. Even more significant is the fact that Moses did not put an actual snake on the pole, but rather a bronze one. We're supposed to remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when Paul says, for our sake, the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul says there is that Jesus didn't actually become a sinful person. He's God. But rather, he became legally sin for our sakes. Do you see that? Do you see the connection there? This is the most significant part, though. The Jews, though, all they had to do was to look upon the bronze serpent and they were saved. Which is a glorious foreshadow of how we are fully and completely and truly saved when we look upon Jesus in faith. No matter how wretched and rotten and sinful those early Jews were, no matter how sick they were, all they had to do is to look upon God's gracious provision of this random metal snake and they were saved. And what that tells us, brothers, it doesn't matter how wretched you are or how wretched your friend is or that person that you think is beyond redemption. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how wicked they are. All they have to do is to look upon God's gracious provision and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in faith, and they are saved. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the good news. That's the great illustration. And so the next time that Nicodemus comes to us and they say, Barton or Brett or Frank or whatever it is how can these things be possible we say the exact same thing Jesus said look to the son of man just look to Jesus there's no arithmetic there's no hoop you have to jump through you just look upon Jesus with a repentant heart and you believe what he says that's it So Jesus follows this great illustration up with a great explanation in verse 16. Uh, Martin Luther says that this verse is the gospel and minister. Uh, It's actually the verse that converted D.L. Moody. You all know who D.L. Moody was? D.L. Moody was actually a pastor when he got converted. It's because some random guy who uh, he needed to fill D.L. Moody's pulpit got into the pulpit and he was actually a believer and preached John 3.16 like 10 times in a row. And his church doubled in size. And when he got home from vacation or wherever he was going, he asked his wife, how did the young chap do? And they said, well, the congregation has doubled. He's like, what? He's said, yeah, this guy actually preaches that God loves people. He, he says, he's preaching that God loves sinners? I got to go talk to this young man. Then he went to go hear him. And he was converted. Because he heard this guy preach John 3.16. John 3, 16, Jesus says, this is the heart of new birth. It is the love of God. That's the heart behind this whole thing. That God is love and in love he gave and he gave me that should whoever believe in me might not perish but have eternal life. The whole thing's about love. That's the basis of this. Of, Jesus, of, of God the Father giving God the Son so that we might be saved in him. I love, um, if you do not know Kent Hughes, he's a great preacher and also commentator. But he has this beautiful little thing that he does with John 3.16 where he takes each word and explains it. So I'm just going to read it to you. I'll try to read it slowly because it's really, it's really wonderful. This is what he says. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his only son, the greatest gift, that whoever the greatest opportunity believes the greatest simplicity in him the greatest attraction should not perish the greatest promise but the greatest difference have the greatest certainty eternal life the greatest possession and so this is what Jesus is saying is that in him and in him alone we have eternal life it's an absolute necessity Which leads us to that last part, the necessity of the cross. Kent Hughes also says, it's true that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it, but judgment does come through him. And because of this, there's this dynamic process going on that he describes in verses 19 through 21. How man responds to Jesus, to light, to truth, indicates if they've received new birth or not. Is essentially what it gets down to. And so this is what's happening here. Jesus is saying that through him, that, that new promised age that the whole Bible is, is looking forward to, is pointing to, has arrived. And this new birth, when we're born again, we begin the initial stages of that eternal life where we're able to have intimacy and, and fellowship with our triune God, where we walk with him and he's with us and he's our God forever. Where we, may, where we are made new and, and this will only give way To something better in the new heavens and the new earth when we are again transformed into little Christ, we're with him forever. And he's saying in this passage, what makes this possible, what transforms a condemned sinner into a justified saint, is nothing but simple faith in Jesus and his accomplished work on the cross. But there is a condition we must believe. What is belief? Belief isn't just, you know, the facts, you know, the facts of the gospel, you believe the facts of the gospel, and you actually trust the gospel. You're banking your life on it. It does not say that you have to have perfect faith. Not one of us in here has perfect faith. All that matters is the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is saying that we truly must believe in him. Don't believe in yourself, Nicodemus. Don't believe in your good works. Don't believe in the things that you have done or hope to do. That's a giant waste of time. That just leaves you remaining in your condemnation. The whole of the Gospel of John teaches this. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all of that is summed up in that answer that Jesus gives to Nicodemus' question. Jesus, how are these things possible? He says... Look to me in faith. All right, so that, that, that's, that's the basis of this beautiful doctrine. Now, really quickly, let's look at the posture of those born again, verses 22 through 36. Now, after this conversation with the Nicodemus, you know, Jesus and his disciples, they pick up and they go, get started with their public ministry. We're about to get into the woman at the well in John chapter 4. But after this conversation in secret, they start their public ministry. People are attracted to Jesus. People are coming and getting baptized, right? Now, the disciples of John the Baptist saw this, and this rivalry breaks out, which is kind of funny, if not depressing. But they go to their guy, John the Baptist, and say, John, um, everybody's going to Jesus now? I mean, he's he's kind of stealing your thunder, and uh, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do here. The way that John the Baptist responds really serves as the model for everyone who is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, our posture, the posture of our heart. Notice how John responds. He says, guys, listen, I am like the bridegroom's friend, okay? Jesus is the groom. I'm not. This is his day. I don't care about me. This is my best friend. I'm just really excited about him. I want him to be joyful. His joy is actually my joy. It fills me with joy to see the the groom being overwhelmed with joy. That's my joy. And what we're to understand for that is as those who are saved by grace in Christ alone, that's our posture. That's our joy. It's all wrapped up in Jesus now. It's this this divine joy that he prays that we would be filled with later in the Gospel of John. But but Jesus is our joy. In fact, it's a double joy because not only are we his best friend, but we're actually the bride to whom he is marrying. He is our joy. Are you filled with that joy? Secondly, we have a posture of humility. With that great joy, John says he must increase, but I must increase. Why does he say that? Because John knows "Who, who cares about me. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's ushering this new kingdom. He's the one who's making things new. I don't want people to gravitate towards me. I want them to go to him. It's all about him. It's not my story anymore. It's all about his story, which he has so graciously made me a little part of. And so we have this posture of humility that Paul has. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's all about him. When we're in our right minds, We want everybody to see Jesus in us. We don't care about us. It's all about the master of the universe, the savior of the world. We want people to see him. But lastly, too, we have this posture of compassion. I think we see this implicitly. Jesus, friends, he is compassion in the flesh. The spirit is making us like Jesus. And therefore, as those who are in Jesus, we become slowly but surely a little bit more compassionate particularly to the lost, to the Nicodemuses, as Jesus was compassionate towards us. I think that is one reason John said he must increase, therefore I must decrease, because he knows that people need to go to Jesus to be made new. And that was the great desire of his heart. Please go to to the one that was foretold. Go to the Messiah. Go to the one who makes all things new. Don't go to me. Go to Christ. And just like the Apostle Paul, who was saved by grace, what did he feel like? He felt like he became obligated to share the gospel to everybody who would listen, as we see in Romans 1. And why wouldn't he? He understands how important this is, how significant this is, how necessary this is. He wanted to share the gospel, this amazing story, with everybody who would listen. So as we boil it down, this is what we see. John got it. John the Baptist got it. Paul got it. And I think Nicodemus eventually got it. Do we get it? That the heartbeat of God has an evangelistic rhythm to it. And because of that, we must too? Think about that, not for guilt purposes, because I'm in that same boat with you. But think about that, to awaken you to the necessity, to the urgency of this. That the only answer to man's problems, to our family's problems, to our children's problems, to our parents' problems, to our best friend's problems, is Jesus Christ, the one who makes all things new and pours out his spirit. Why would we not share that, right? It reminds me of Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus looked out to the crowd with compassion Why? Because he saw a whole bunch of people who were harassed and helpless and sheep without a shepherd. And in John three, he looked at Nicodemus, this religious somebody, and he saw the exact same thing. And that is why he did not waste time talking about football. He brought him to the heart of the matter because it's that important. So brothers, by God's grace, resting in the spirit, the next time God ordains a meeting with us and Nicodemus, and they ask us about Jesus, may we have that same urgency because it's that important. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you looked upon miserable sinners like us and in love you sent your Son so that through the gift of faith we might be born again and have eternal life. Father, help us by the indwelling Spirit to believe that all the more deeply. And so be compelled and even feel obligated to share that good news with everyone who will listen for their joy and our joy and your joy. We pray all these things in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus. Amen.